Good evening, everyone. I'm Lori LaPaul. Welcome to Mendocino Theatre Company's Readings on the Radio. Tonight, we offer you holiday stories and songs from our young and older troubadours, closing with a beloved story from O. Henry, The Gift of the Magi. So let the winter evening leave its chill outside and warm yourselves listening to holiday memories and stories from Janice Cullerford, Frey Barty, Joan Borgman, and Ken Krauss, with music and lyrics from our own Holly Tannen. Janice Culliford. Once there was a Scottish woman named Susan. She married my first cousin, Paul Culliford. She researched the Scottish archives, checking up on what type of family she was marrying into, I guess. She found that Charles Dickens was a Culliford and Dickens was his pen name. He named his eldest son, Charles Culliford Dickens. Being myself named Janice Culliford, I found this fact all very interesting. Let's fast forward for a minute to the 1970s. In the mid-70s, I met my ex-husband at the Del Arte School of Physical Comedy in Blue Lake, California. We became a part of a traveling clown troupe both of us were clowns, jugglers, and musicians. In the late 70s, we moved to the Bay Area. My husband was very excited and eager to perform at the Dickens Christmas Fair in San Francisco. At the time, the fair took place at Fort Mason. I didn't know much about it, or for that matter, I didn't know anything about it. Just how much he always wanted to be part of it. It sounded very exciting. There must have been open call auditions as I don't remember making any appointments or preparing anything. But since my hubby was so keen to go, I thought I'll tag along too and try out myself. After all, they usually needed clowns and jugglers and acrobats and roustabouts in these period fairs, didn't they? And since that was my background, why not? And I now knew I was a Dickens of sorts. So perhaps I could become some part of a family enterprise. I took my roller skates in Melodian. For this audition, I decided to go as a character I had developed called Ruth Ann Kowalski. She was a really geeky girl, roller derby queen, and also worked at a car hop diner as a waitress in her off time. Ruth Ann wore a tall, white, brushed, faux fur majorette hat that tied under her chin, adorned with rhinestones. She had cat-eye-winged eyeglasses, also with rhinestones. They were permanently off-kilter. She had a bright canary yellow shirt, equally bright satin turquoise skirt, and her roller skates were decorated with chains and charms. So this is what I wore to the audition, and I just planned to wing it. In other words, improvise. We arrived at Fort Mason, and I signed in, waited my turn, as I was sitting there, I began to notice the folks ahead of me were auditioning with songs, really lovely, prepared, really nice pieces. Most of them appeared to be trained and also operatically trained. Oh, my. Well, uh, since I was already here and signed in, I might as well go for it. I came roller skating in enthusiastically, as Ruth Ann is highly excitable, and I proclaimed I was Ruth Ann Kowalski on wheels. I gave an extra emphasis announcing my presence with a ta-da. And then 
I proceeded to sing Peanut Butter and Jelly, a song that Ruth Ann knew. Here's a verse. First, you take the bread and you slice it. You slice it. Then you take a knife and you spread it. You spread it. Peanut, peanut butter and jelly. Peanut, peanut butter and jelly. Toasted. I finished and I looked out to a sea of dropped jaws and open mouths. And I felt the deafening silence coming from the directors and fellow auditioners. Total silence followed my number. Clearly, I was at the wrong audition. One of the producers, when he was able to speak again, approached me and handed me a business card. And he said, call this number. I think these folks will like to meet you. Well, I figured since I didn't exactly ace this one, it might be a chance for another gig. So I took the card and left to the sounds of beautiful notes wafting through the air from the next diva doing her thing. I called the number on the card. It was for a group called the Hallelujah Sisters. Turns out they already had a heads up about my recent audition and were interested in meeting me. And they asked me to bring my melodeon. They needed a musician. And the best part, they were already part of the Dickens Fair. We hit it off. I was hired. And at this point, you might be wondering, what about my husband? How was his audition? My ex-hubby did not get a part. Oops. So with me added to the group, we became five. The Hallelujah Sisters were like the predecessors of what would become the Salvation Army. I became a young Cockney woman named Jenny. We stood on street corners in Victorian London, preaching the good word under lampposts, singing hymns and anthems, marching and protesting with our signs, giving warnings of the sins of alcohol. We marched into taverns and pubs and spreading the good word, of course, and protesting the evils of drink. We tried our best to save those drunken sots we encountered and were often chased out, sometimes even thrown out of these dens of iniquity. It was all very spontaneous and lots of fun. The few souls we did manage to save would join us to parade through Victorian London with signs. We also had drums and tambourines. One of the signs read, down with demon rum. I loved the smells and sounds of this Victorian era at Christmas that the Dickens Fair created. And the Cinnabons were out of this world delicious. I threw my all into this group and had a most entertaining Christmas. If the current Dickens Fair is like the ones I have attended, I highly recommend going and enjoying yourself. Happy Holidays from MTC. It's Frey Barty. I'm 15 and a sophomore at Mendocino High School, and here is a cornucopia of anecdotes. My mom's side of the family came from Sweden. And amongst pupperkakor, straw houses, and handmade string tomte dolls, she brought tradition, 
So mixed and inauthentic is my experience that I can't claim to know what a Swedish Christmas is like, but I think that's the point. Christmas is itself a medley of culture and family and does not belong to anyone. We have a big white suitcase with steel clasps. A week before Christmas, my mom carefully pulls it from the attic and I run to my room. Passing the chaos of its contents, I find the one item that stays year after year, a tiny key. After some fiddling with the suitcase, it pops open, eagerly spewing the paraphernalia of mirth around me. My mom gets mad about the messy tinsel, but to me, it's a sign of Christmas. I can't help but wonder how many people have something like this. This tradition makes me feel like I'm part of a small group. Maybe only my family knows what is in the box. But other traditions make me part of broader groups. Hot chocolates by the parade, tumbling down the grassy town common, sitting on Santa's lap. This makes me part of Fort Bragg, watching Santa Tracker or the New Year's Eve ball drop. This makes me part of a world of festive people. And some traditions are just for me though others do them too. My parents are woodworkers, and one year they were replacing the windows at the skunk train station. In return for my albeit impatient waiting for them to finish, I received a miniature train set, which I later expanded upon with light-up buildings from Paul Bunyan and a Rossi's free pile. Now, each year, with varying quality, I assemble a little holiday diorama. The train loops through foam-board carved tunnels, a little porcelain village, and an Elmer's glue skating rink. All of these traditions tie me together with different groups, from myself to the world. They let me get to know other people and other ways of doing things, and I think they build identity. So, however you celebrate, I think you should. Because if we don't remember to remember the happy moments, they just slip by. A Hallmark gift card of a radio segment, brought to you by me, Frey Barty, and the Mendocino Theatre Company. Hi, I'm Joan Borgman here to share my winter holidays memories via the Mendocino Theatre Company. For me, a nice Jewish girl growing up in the Bronx in the 1950s, the winter holidays always brought both joy and confusion. Joy was all around. There was excitement in the air on the streets, in school, in the shops, this hustle and bustle, sparkling lights in the snow. However, I also experienced confusion because where I expected to experience the melding of cultures and traditions that were around me, instead, I experienced a clash, a shutting out. We were a multi-generation family living together in a two-family house while connecting with other relatives often. We were, are, Jewish, my parents being the first generation born in the USA who then lived through the Great Depression. My peers from school and Girl Scouts it came from cultural and religious backgrounds different from my own, yet living in similar situations as my family did. Outside of our homes, I felt that we were all equal, and I wanted to share my peers' experiences, which meant to me that I could celebrate Christmas 
just as much as my peers could celebrate Hanukkah. Lighting the menorah and getting gifts throughout the eight-day week was the best. And I wanted to share that experience with the world. However, I was duly informed that we would not celebrate Christmas in our home because we were a Jewish family, although we only attended synagogue for weddings and bar mitzvahs. I didn't understand. It seemed the world around us was a Christmassy winter wonderland. Didn't we go to see the world-famous Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center? Join the throngs to experience the fabulous holiday windows on display at the large downtown department stores? Attend the New York City Ballet performances of the Nutcracker? One year was different, though. I was allowed to hang a stocking on Christmas Eve in the room where we lit our menorah. That night after bedtime, my parents stealthily went out. And in the morning, there were gifts, candy in the stockings, Christmas, and Hanukkah? Why not? However, that was the only year it happened. So the following year, I was stymied by this turn of events. So to this day, I celebrate whatever holidays on hand because life is short and it sure isn't fair, but I can do that. Hi, I'm Ken Krause. In honor of the end of the year 2022, I'd like to read a story by Scott Blum called New Year's Resolutions, The Two Lists, A Spiritual Story. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year! I was fortunate to spend time with an enigmatic man named Robert during a very special period of my life. Robert taught me many things during our days together, and this time of the year reminds me of one particular interaction we had. Now that you are becoming more aware, Robert said, you need to begin to set goals for yourself so you don't lose the momentum you have built. Like New Year's resolutions? I asked. That's an interesting idea, he smirked. Let's do that. By then I was used to his cryptic responses, so I knew something was up because of the way his eyes sparkled as he let out an impish laugh. Tonight's assignment is to make two lists, Robert continued. The first is a list of all the New Year's resolutions you want to keep, and the second is a list of all the New Year's resolutions you will keep. Write the want list first, and when you've exhausted all of your ideas, then write the second list on another sheet of paper. That night, I went home and spent several hours working on the two lists. The want list felt overwhelming at first, but after a while I got into writing all the things I had always wanted to do if the burdens of life hadn't gotten in the way. After nearly an hour, the list swelled to fill the entire page and contain nearly all of my ideas of an ideal life. The second list was much easier, and I was able to quickly commit ten practical resolutions that I felt would be both realistic and helpful. The next day, I met Robert in front of the local food co-op, where we seemed to have most of our enlightening conversations. Tell me about your two lists, Robert said as the familiar smirk crept onto his face. The first list contains all the things I should do if I completely changed my life to be the person I always wanted to be. 
and the second list contains all the things I could do by accepting my current life and taking realistic steps towards the life I want to lead. Let me see the second list, he said. I handed him the second list and without even looking at it, he ripped the paper into tiny pieces and threw it in the nearby garbage can. His disregard for the effort I had put into the list annoyed me at first, but after I calmed down I began to think about the first list in a different light. In my heart, I knew the second list was a cop-out, and the first list was the only one that really mattered. And now, the first list, Robert bowed his head and held out both of his hands. I purposefully handed him the first list and held his gaze for several seconds, waiting for him to begin reading the page. After an unusually long silence, he began to crumple the paper into a ball and once again tossed it into the can without looking at it. What did you do that for? I couldn't hide my anger any longer. Robert began to speak in a quiet and assured voice. What you should or could do with your life no longer matters. The only thing that matters from this day forward is what you must do. He then drew a folded piece of paper from his back pocket and handed it to me. I opened it carefully and found a single word floating in the middle of the white page. Love. You have been listening to stories from Janice Cullerford, Frey Barty, Joan Borgman, and a reading by Ken Krause, with music and lyrics from our own Holly Tannen. Now we have a most famous and beloved story, The Gift of the Magi, by O. Henry. Written more than a hundred years ago, the soul of the story is very much alive and well today. O. Henry was known for the witty and sardonic endings to his stories and the gift of the Magi will not disappoint. So sit back and enjoy the voices of Pamela Allen, Laura Pinu, and Ken Krause as they unfold the story of Della and James, the gift of the Magi. One dollar and 87 cents. That was all. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and 87 cents and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl, so Della did it, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home, a furnished flat at $8 per week, it did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicacy squad. 
In the vestibule below was a letter box into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, though, they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only a dollar eighty-seven with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only one dollar eighty-seven to buy a present for Jim, her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within 20 seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window someday to dry just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her, and then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sophronie, hair goods of all kinds. 
One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sophronie. Will you buy my hair? I buy hair. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars. She lifts the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him, quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by the generosity added to love. Which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his steps on the stair, away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying a silent little prayer about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. 
Sing Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what, what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? Cut it off and sold it. Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone? You needn't look for it. It's sold, I tell you. Sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Della, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs side and back that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile. My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat. Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Dell. Let's put our Christmas presents away and uh, keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. Now, uh, suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. 
But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. You have been listening to Mendocino Theatre Company's Readings on the Radio with Janice Cullerford, Frey Barty, Joan Borgman, Ken Krauss, Pamela Allen, and Laura Pinu with songs and music by Holly Tannen. I'm Lori LePaul, the director of the readings with Ken Krauss as sound recordist and design. For more information about tickets, our new season, and workshops and classes for youth and adults, you can join our mailing list by going to the website at mendocinotheater.org. Again, that's mendocinotheater with E-A-T-R-E dot org. Or call our box office at 707-937-4477. Thank you for listening, and may the new year bring you health and joy.